Good morning to you. So good to be together this morning. Take your Bibles if you would, and let's look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. You know we are in the Gospel of Luke, but we have, we have taken chapter 14 where Jesus was exposing the sin of the Pharisees, their prideful way of puffing themselves up. And we've, we've taken a bit of an excursus into this whole matter of the cultivation of humility, which as you know is a fight for our lives so often, but yet we're called to be humble, we're called to cultivate and nurture a heart like Christ, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And so we're looking at some ways to nurture humility and to crush this tendency in us to rise up and think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And and in our principal list of ways to cultivate humility, we find ourselves, especially last time, in this whole matter of forgiving sin, pardoning sin, the sins against us and the offenses that are done to us. The question before us this morning is, is this, why is it so difficult to forgive? Why is it so hard? There are some offenses we might find it relatively easy or easier to overlook. And we might even quote some passages of Scripture that help us get there, like Proverbs 19.11. It's the glory of a man to overlook a transgression, and, and love covers a multitude of sins, and mercy triumphs over judgment, as Jesus had told the masses. But there are other offenses against us that for some reason it's not only excruciating to have to think about pardoning, but we, we can find a list of reasons why we should not have to. Why is forgiveness so difficult? In Ephesians chapter 4, you have near the end of the chapter a uh, sort of a put-off, put-on passage, and the last verse tells us that we are to be kind to one another, as opposed to the verse prior, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice, all those things are to be put away from you. And we are to be kind to one another and tender-hearted, tender in our hearts toward others. And then it says, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We could say that one of the reasons just initially thinking about it, that it's difficult to forgive offenses, particularly some offenses, is that we are are trying in our flesh to think about the offense and its cost and the pain brought to us and even, even the justice that must be meted out to make this score settled. And yet notice two very important words in verse 32. It says at the end, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This is the key to growing in our ability to pardon and to get at some of those offenses over which we have made a list of excuses why we shouldn't have to. This is the key right here. It is Christ, the ground of our forgiveness, that makes all the difference. 
If you ground your forgiveness in someone's conduct, you will find lots of reasons why you should not have to forgive them because some people's conduct does not change. Furthermore, some people do not desire to admit that they have offended, and some people never come to the place where they are willing to admit an offense and try to reconcile a relationship. Usually uh, on the fringes and sort of away from you in distant relationships, that might be a little easier to to, uh, sort of process, and especially if it's someone who doesn't know Christ, you can't appeal to their conscience, they certainly will never be at the place where they could genuinely ask for pardon in the way Christians do. And so you might more readily dispense with those scenarios, but it's those close to us, those in whose presence we are most vulnerable, where the greatest pain can be caused. And when those offenses happen, we try to find ways not to forgive. And it's largely because we're grounding forgiveness at times in human things. We're grounding it in earthly things, uh, their conduct and whether it changes, their repentance and whether we thought it was genuine, their confession, how many times they confess, how many ways they make amends, how many ways that their restitution comes back to you, how many payments they have to make to equalize what you think ought to be equalized, how many ways they have to... uh, to have justice meted out to them from you so that you feel satisfied that enough has been done. When we ground our forgiveness in something human, something we've done, something we assess, we evaluate, some way that evens the score between human beings and relationships, this becomes our greatest problem. This is our proverbial Achilles heel and why it is so difficult to forgive. But if, on the other hand, we ground forgiveness where it is ultimately grounded, God's pardon comes to the sinner on one basis, the work of Jesus Christ alone, the person of Jesus Christ who offered himself without blemish to God so that sinners might be cleansed from dead works and the perfect substitute that he was, the satisfaction of his sacrifice before a holy and true God. This is the only ground for pardon. And it is, by the way, the only tool through which you can come to the place where the most difficult offenses can be pardoned in your heart. It is a supernatural work because it is grounded in Christ's supernatural work and person. If you're going to cultivate humility, you're going to have to learn to be like Jesus at this most fundamental level. And if you're going to forgive as he forgives, you're going to have to ground your forgiveness, not in earthly things, not in people's conduct, not in payments, not in what you think is just, but you're going to have to ground it in Christ. You're going to have to ground all pardon in the pardon that comes in Christ. Now, in our little list of pride crushers, we've already said, first of all, number one, you must submit to the lordship of Christ in your life. You want to cultivate humility, then trust his sovereignty, know that he's sovereign, confess that he's sovereign, whatever happens in your life, he is sovereign. This may even help when an offense happens to you. God is sovereign. God allows the offense. God allows the pain. God allows those things. He ordains them for greater and grander purposes over which you will never have an unsatisfied question when you meet God. And so it is humbling to us as sinners to admit right up front that whatever God allows, he is sovereign. In fact, he is sovereign meticulously to the point where he brought about my salvation. 
And my dead heart could never come without his sovereign grace quickening me out of my dead condition. And he granted me repentance by bringing the circumstances about whereby I'd see my sin. He opened my eyes. He granted faith. And I reached for Christ. It was all his sovereign work. This is humbling. This is ultimately pride crushing. Some, some days you'd just be sitting there thinking, Lord, why me? There's no, there's no answer to that question except his love and what's grounded in his character. You can't say, why me, and then turn it back on yourself and say, well, there must be something about me, something valuable in me, or even my pitiful state. No, it isn't your pitiful state that, that moves God ultimately to love and save sinners. It is God who is a saving God. It is God's nature to save. And you were chosen before the foundation of the world, before the world began. You were in God's heart and in his mind that, that he would ordain your life and then he would ordain that you, as a child of God, would one day be called effectually to himself. This is humbling. And then secondly, I said, we, we must learn everything Scripture says about the cross so that when you look at the cross, like the song was saying, you know, set its scenes before my mind all the time. Why? Because there you find the necessity of the cross was our sin, my sin. You find the humility of it, the love of Christ to condescend and come here to be one of us to pay the price. You find the severity of our sin at the cross, you find the totality of it. It, in, it included a death. It had to go all the way to a resurrected life and an exalted Savior who now bears the name above all names. And it is irreversible, irrevocable. When you, when you look at the cross, you are humbled that our sin was the cause, my guilt. And then thirdly, we nurture humility by opening our heart to the Spirit's renewal. That is to say, He rebukes, He reproves, He corrects, and He trains in righteousness. If you're going to grow in your humility, you must learn to come to God's Word with a soft and pliable heart and let the Spirit change the way you believe and your convictions and what you think. We are an opinionated culture. We love our opinions. We shout them from the rooftops. We say them off the cuff. We excuse those that are wrong. We say things all the time and never have to be held accountable for a single thing of them. I mean, I, don't, I was reading the uh, news this last week, and, you know, they have, they have these fact-check sites, you know, and they check every politician who says things. And the politician can be wrong, even our own president's, Hundreds of times in a single uh, few speeches. Nobody holds them accountable. It doesn't matter. Eh, who cares? I don't give me. We're just, we love human exaltation. And if you want to nurture humility as a Christian, you can't stay there. You cannot stay there. You cannot stay in your human opinions. You come to God's word and God shapes and corrects and changes and molds and moves you in a direction of new conviction and what God thinks about everything. That's, that's what we saw when we looked at that third pride-crushing principle. Number four, last time, was about mercy, seeking forgiveness of others when you offend them. And we looked at Psalm 51, noting that humility feeds on mercy. Humility feeds on mercy. Look, you cry out to God for mercy, you are caused to be humbled. And humility increases the more you own your sin. It increases with ownership. We saw that David in his confession owned his sin and 
And then humility is proven by, by an actual changed heart, an actual changing conduct over time where you're washed and those old sins begin to see uh, an elimination of them and new things, new good works in their place. Not totally and ultimately. You'll never be free of sin until we meet Christ, but there's an increase of virtue when that kind of humility starts to be proven. We come to number five here, and it is this whole matter of pardoning every offense. And we looked at last time at the first part of it. You remember in Matthew chapter 18, turn there for a moment. Matthew chapter 18, you remember Peter asked the question, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Why is forgiveness so hard? Because sin is so prolific. We offend each other all the time. We sin against one another all the time in word, deed, attitude. It happens constantly. In fact, the closer you are to somebody, the more potential, as I said, there is to hurt and offend. You get into a family, you, you see it all the time. You see it in marriage. You, you see it in your family life between siblings. You see it with your closest long-time friends. Well, you have to come through very difficult things because you trusted that individual. You put your vulnerability out there and it got squished. It got smashed in an offense. Someone said something that was hurtful. Someone uh, made a joke about something that isn't any joke to you. Someone mocked you or scorned you. Someone uh, took lightly something that, that's very painful to you. Someone maybe stole something from you, maybe took advantage of you in some way. Emotionally, they, they cut you off in some way for some offense you didn't even know you had done. These things happen in close relationships, and these are painful offenses. Someone maybe personally harmed you, physically harmed you in a huge way or a devastating or life-altering way. These things happen. Sin is prolific in our lives. How does God then expect us to come together? That's essentially what Peter was asking. I mean, how often? Forgiveness is hard, Lord. How often? Even in Luke's recording of this, in Luke 17, Jesus had to remind them, you don't need any more faith than you already have been given. You need to strengthen what's there. But even if you had real, genuine, raw faith, the size of a mustard seed, it defies the odds. It defies the norm. So you don't, you don't need to come to me and say, wow, if I'm going to have to forgive that much, you're going to have to give me some other resource. No, you, you have the resources. You have all you need. We have what we need in the Spirit's power. So how do we do this? Well, we have to see forgiveness rightly. And it's very serious what's at stake here. If you don't love mercy and learn to forgive, then your, your intimate walk with the Father will be harmed, your conscience bludgeoned, and so these are, these are serious matters. The, the greatest gift you can give to others is to be like Christ in this matter of pardoning. But in order to do that, we must understand it. And that's essentially what Jesus was doing when he answered Peter. And Peter said, how often? You remember, we looked at the parable last time. Well, it's grounded in Christ, Peter. And if it's grounded in a pardon given to you for all sin, past, present, and future, so that you now stand in a permanent state of freedom then out of the lavish uh, tidal wave of that kind of love and forgiveness, you're to spill that and splash that and overwhelm that on other people all the time. Seventy times seven, endless, lavish, compassion, forgiveness, pardon, 
But we've got to understand what it is and what it isn't. That would be important, and I want to take some time this morning and try to make this clear. First, let's, let's sort of define it generally. We've done this before when we've studied forgiveness, but here's a bit of a summary. There are two primary New Testament word groups that, that are translated pardon or mercy or forgiveness or compassion is sometimes the translation. And the first word is more of a technical term. You see it here in Matthew's parable. It is the word, the most common word group for forgiveness, meaning to let go or to release, to release. The other New Testament word is sometimes translated compassion. We saw it in the Colossians text there, in, I mean the Ephesians text rather, chapter 4, verse 32, where the word means to give lavishly or freely, to give lavishly or freely, or to freely pardon or to give graciously. So forgiveness, if you just sort of take both word groups and the interchangeable way they're sometimes used, even though they have a different nuanced meaning, Forgiveness, then, means a complete release with extravagant mercy or compassion. To release completely with lavish mercy. That would be a simple way to define New Testament forgiveness. Now, what are we being asked to release when we forgive another person? Well, I cannot pardon them for their sins before God like some false religions where you go to a priest and you confess and they, they act as though they're some sort of vice partner, vice forgiver, where somehow they're forgiving you ultimately before God. No, only God can deal with the fact of a person's guilt before him. Guilt is a fact. You either are guilty before God or you're not. And scripture tells us when we're guilty before God and when we're not guilty before God, and so it is only God, therefore, who can pardon people from their sins and deal with the fact of guilt. Moreover, I cannot release someone from divine consequences for their sin. If someone is sinning against me, I cannot, in my pardon of them or my mercy toward them, release them from what God may want to do in divine consequences for their conduct. If they're a Christian, God's going to chasten them for their sin, and he does chasten us, and sometimes it goes beyond what someone else has already pardoned you for. In fact, you could be restored to a relationship because of the mercy and compassion of the offended and be completely restored and yet still have some ongoing divine consequences in your life to train you in righteousness and to increase your virtue. Hebrews 12 talks about the discipline of the Lord, using that Greek terminology that speaks of pressing in, pressure uh, that God brings in our life through people and circumstances and trials in order to increase our virtue that we might share in his holiness. That's the discipline of the Lord. I can't release someone from divine consequences if God wants to do that. And if it's an unbeliever who sinned against me, they're under the wrath of God. They are storing up wrath from God, and I cannot release them from the divine judgment that may come to them for having sinned the way that they've sinned. I cannot release them from that. That is God's business. So what am I releasing them from? This is very, very important when it comes to forgiveness. When we're told in the scriptures to forgive, we are releasing people from our personal right over them, from our personal right over them, or more particularly, our personal right to get payment from the debt that they owe. 
Did they sin against me? Yes, they owe a debt. That's an actual debt between human beings. When I sin against you, I owe you something for that sin. It's a, it's a personal debt uh, of sin. It's a sin debt. And I have committed that against you. So if you're going to forgive me, you're going to release me from having to settle that personal account with you as if you were the judge. So when I forgive someone, the debt of wrongdoing is released. It is released in the sense that I release them of my personal right to judge them and go after a pound of flesh and go after payment. That is the definition of forgiveness. And when you see it in the New Testament, that's what God wants you to do. He wants you, not on the basis of someone asking, not on the basis of how genuine their repentance is, not on the basis of their changed conduct or changed life, or even the fact that the pain finally has gone away or dissipated. No, not on the basis of any of those things. On the basis of Christ, on the ground of his forgiveness of me, being complete and total, so that now I stand in a state of freedom. On that basis, I am to release others of the debts they owe me personally. Done, over, gone. You sin against me, I release it. That's the goal in forgiveness. Now, the practice of it is clear then. First of all, it is to be as compassionate as Christ. We saw that in Ephesians 4.32, The parallel might be Colossians 3.13 if you're writing passages down to study further. In Colossians 3, you see parallels there, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. There's that term for compassion. In fact, earlier in verse 12, he said, put on a heart of compassion, similar ideas, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, here it is, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now that fits the parable of Matthew 18. You remember the king forgave the debt, the the person who'd been freed goes out to collect personal debts against him, which were minuscule by comparison, and the king was told about it. The king hauls him in there and says, you wicked slave, I had compassion on you on that basis. On the basis of having been given lavish compassion, you should have. You should have. Already, you should have. You should have walked out of here. And though you were on cloud nine because you had no more debt and you get to go home and see your family and they're not going to prison, the magistrate's not coming after your goods and your life for the rest of your life. You're walking out on cloud nine When you see somebody across the street who owes you, by comparison, a few measly shekels, you should say, you know what? I release you of that. I mean, you did have a debt incurred against me, and I want you to know I want you to be right with God. You owe me personally nothing. I want to completely restore. I want to be useful to you. I want to be, but I'm alive. God has forgiven me. I want to pardon any debt incurred against me. That's what should have happened, as Jesus illustrated in the parable. So it is to be compassionate, as compassionate as Christ. And according to to Matthew 18 and Luke 17, you're to forgive as often as you're sinned against. In other words, there's, there's no finish line where you're going to say, that's it. All right, that's it. Now, 
Now think about the finish line you have right now with some people. First of all, we're not supposed to have a finish line. And some of you are counting. When I get to 490, 70 times 7, 491, that's it. Technically, it's just I got chapter and verse now. I'm not going to 491. Listen, that isn't Jesus' point, obviously. You've been forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future. You will, as a Christian, never be under condemnation for any sin. Out of the sheer joy of that ought to come a willingness to work with anyone, to come alongside anyone, to to say to them, you owe me personally nothing. I'm no judge. I'm no judge. I want to work with you. I want to help you. We need to restore. There are things we need to do in our relationship. I'll talk about those in a moment. But you owe me personally nothing as if I'm some ultimate judge. You owe God everything. You owe me nothing. It is to be as often as you're sinned against. There's no finish line. And according to Matthew 18, it is from the heart. Notice at the end of the parable in Matthew 18, my heavenly Father, verse 35, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. From your heart. The inward life, a true releasing of my right to judge you. So how do you do that? Why is it so hard? Because we don't often have in the moment the settled conviction that we had a debt that was so astronomically incredible. Look, if you want to learn humility and learn to forgive, you must in that moment when you're offended and want to collect a debt, remember what your debt was. That's the whole point of the parable. And we just have this compartment. We just carve that out. All I can remember is your debt against me. That's all I see. I see the books, the pages spread out. Here's my accounting. You have not made these things right. And after all, you have sinned against me so many times. The books, I don't have any space to write them anymore. And God says, remember the debt you had against God. What does James chapter 2 say? If you fail the law of God in one point, you are guilty of all of it. It's as though you had violated all of it. People say, I'm not a liar. Really? Oh, I didn't murder anyone. Really? How about in your heart? Starts with the heart. I haven't been immoral. I've not committed sexual sin outside my marriage. Really? What about in your heart? What about the debt, the astronomical debt that can just come from one violation of the law in an attitude or a thought, yet let alone patterns of it in our life, let alone willful, rebellious acts before God. You know why forgiveness is so hard? Because we don't think our debt was all that much. You remember that second principle for cultivating humility. Remember the necessity of the cross. Remember the sinless substitute who was there. Remember Christ, the sinless one who was rejected by his heavenly father, the most loving relationship that is known, that exists, the divine relationship in the inner Trinitarian union, divine love shared intimately with with all holiness and all purity and no darkness and no evil. That relationship severed, though he never deserved that it be severed. His father cut him off. Why? 
because of our debt. And it wasn't just one violation. Our whole life is a stench to God prior to coming under Christ's blood. A stench, beloved, every day. Every day, an unforgiven sinner is a stench to God. Every day, all day. That's why the psalmist said he's angry with the wicked every day. Oh, he loves the world. He saves sinners. He loves sinners. Somehow in the mystery of his wonderful perfections, he's able to perfectly love and have this holy hatred that must meet itself out in his wrath. And for you and I, that was poured out on his own son, innocent, undefiled, not guilty. And yet, it pleased the Father to crush him and put him to open grief and shame. That's why it's hard to forgive because we don't, we don't remember in our hearts the incredible debt. And therefore, if we don't remember the incredible debt, notice these two go together, then you will not remember his unfathomable compassion for you. You will think his salvation of you was, eh, yeah, it was, it was an act of mercy and compassion. Oh, yeah, when we sing about it, my favorite song, then I get really emotional. But, but you know, why wouldn't he be merciful? I'm, I'm, I'm just the same as any other sinner. Why wouldn't he be merciful to me? I, I wasn't the worst of sinners. You say, do we think those thoughts? We live like we do. We live as though we were more savable than other men. We live as though... The compassion required to save us was, was not nearly as much as it would be to save that guy over there who always offends me. Man, Lord, you're going to have to crank up some serious mercy to get that guy in the kingdom compared to me. I mean, this is how we think about it. No wonder it's hard to forgive because forgiving from the heart means that we are to be convinced of and convicted of in the moment we're sinned against of the incredible debt we had against God and owed to God. And his decrees, Colossians 2 says, were against us. They had to be nailed to the cross. So that's the practice of forgiveness. It's compassionate, it's always, and it is from your inner life, your inner convictions. Now, some Christians, just to clear up some confusion here, some Christians have suggested that until a person seeks forgiveness, we cannot extend forgiveness to them. This view is about 25 years old now. It's never really been a view in church history. It came uh, out of the Presbyterian movement, and uh, Dr. J. Adams and some in the biblical counseling movement held this view. They, they suggest that until a person seeks forgiveness, you cannot extend forgiveness to them. And it is largely based upon the thought, in, in all my reading through the years of this view and discussing it, it's, it's based upon the thought that since God forgives only when we repent and seek his pardon, and since we're to forgive, forgive others just as God has forgiven us, as the text said, then, some say, we are not to extend forgiveness at all until someone asks. 
This view, by the way, says that you must stand ready to forgive. So, so they're trying to say you must have a right heart. You can't hold things against people personally in bitterness or malice. You must obey Ephesians 4.31 and get rid of those things. But you're not required to extend or grant forgiveness until the person truly repents and asks for it. And perhaps you've been influenced to some degree by that view, or perhaps you've needed some clarity. This view, by the way, had encouraged one good thing, I think, when and, and this may have been uh, one of the intentions of the original uh, folks who, who sort of promoted this idea. This view has encouraged, in a good way, uh, people to be challenged to work on reconciliation more proactively. There was the idea, and I, and I grew up with this in, in the Baptist context I grew up with and in church life, basically people would say they forgave someone else when really all they were doing was they, they weren't forgiving them. They were just saying it. Well, I forgave them. But they never reconciled the relationship. They never came back together. They never made themselves useful. They just stayed away from that individual. And they pondered and fostered and festered that stuff in their hearts. Uh, but they would tell you, I forgive. And and this particular teaching that said, no, you need to reconcile with people. You need to make things right. There was a good way in which it challenged the church to stop saying we forgive and actually work through what forgiveness means. And in one sense, that was a good thing. I kind of saw a shift when, when um, Jay Adams' book, From Forgiven to Forgiving, came out, and this view was largely promoted, there was, a, there was a section in there, a whole section on reconciling relationships and restoring relationships. And I think that's been, a, that's been a good discipline because of the other tendency we have, and that's to ignore people who offend us and act like, or, or not act like, but say that we forgive them, but then in our behavior, we never restore with them. Relationships get fragmented. People have lists of things they're holding against others, et cetera, et cetera. But the view, by the way, has also, on the other hand, sadly, fostered some ideas, perhaps unintended, that are not so good. And I've seen this as well. People uh, have begun to keep records of wrongs. That view tended to promote in people's minds the idea that if I don't have to forgive till you ask, then I just have to keep a list. And, oh, you know, you're asking forgiveness for that, but you're not, you're not asking for this. So instead of being concerned about genuine growth in them and repentance, instead of already releasing them of your right to judge, but then helping them come to true fruit of repentance. You're not about that. You're keeping a record of wrongs, and, and you're basically holding that. I'm ho- I have to hold who's offend- offended me and who hasn't. And if you've offended me, not once, not twice, but many times, I, I have kind of a running list of the ways that uh, you have never come, and come back and dealt with that. And so what does that do? Well, you do that, and you could quickly violate 1 Corinthians 13, holding a record of wrongs. You're holding it against them, and pretty soon turns into a violation of Ephesians 4, and now you're bitter and and those kinds of things. I've seen that happen. A second unintended consequence, perhaps, uh, but, but nonetheless equally troubling, is that people who hold that view and they're the ones that have been offended, they become the one who solely determines whether someone's genuine in their repentance. So someone comes and seeks forgiveness, yeah, right, you're not, you're not really repentant. Why why you say I'm not repentant? Because you, you keep doing the sin. Well, I am a sinner. I, I, I'm trying. No, nah, you're not really trying. You're not genuine. I've seen this in marriages that hold this view where one of the spouses will never believe the genuineness of the repentance of the other because they can't change fast enough. You ever seen that? 
You ever been tempted to think that? Well, this view is not a good view in light of that, let alone whether it's biblical. So it hasn't been very, very helpful. I'll give you some some thoughts to think about that, that may clear up some of the confusion. First of all, the definition of forgiveness, the releasing. Look, I'm not releasing them from divine consequences if they never seek forgiveness, and I'm not releasing them from uh, the unreconciled relationship. They, they need to try to work toward a reconciled relationship. That's good for them. It's, it's a sign that they're reconciled to God to come and seek forgiveness for offenses, the ones that they know about and, and see in Scripture. Clearly, they need to come and restore those relationships. So I can't release them of that responsibility, But remember, technically, I am releasing them from my right to judge them and get payment that satisfies me. That is forgiveness. To pardon their guilt in my presence. They're no longer guilty and owing me a personal debt. That is forgiveness. I release them from it. I pardon them from it. You owe me nothing personally. Together, we have to work on restoration, but you owe me personally nothing as if I'm a judge. Now, here's the sort of the theological backdrop of that. So just think, think with me for a moment. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then as I said, on the basis of Christ's payment alone, God forgives our unpayable debt, right? That's the whole point. On the basis of Christ's payment alone, God forgives our unpayable debt. And so in a judicial sense, a positional sense, he sets our account at zero, we, know, we, we owe nothing to God now, nor will we ever owe him anything in the future. That is what happens in salvation. Positionally, judicially, your account is set at zero. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, God could rightfully expect payment in full, yet though we would spend an eternity in hell, the debt could never be paid. So that's the astronomical nature of our debt. We could spend an eternity in hell, it will never be paid, and he could rightfully expect it. So on that ground alone, on Christ's sacrifice alone, we stand in a permanent state of grace, as Romans 5.2 says. So we are positionally forgiven of all sin for all eternity. Whether we confess it or not, I may die in a sudden moment and have a whole bunch of things I've not confessed to the Lord that I actually remember. Not the sins I don't remember, but the sins I remember. I might die actually sinning. And yet, because I'm in Christ, I didn't seek God's forgiveness. That doesn't matter because Christ has already forgiven me and positionally, I am not condemned for those things, whether I asked or not. I may not acknowledge a particular sin or even repent of it, but God extends to me complete pardon for sin's penalty and a payment for it on the sole basis of the finished work of Christ. I am so thrilled about that. I can always... I can always thank God for Christ. I can always ground my faith in Christ. I can always run to Christ. I can always know his payment is full. It is satisfying. I never will be condemned for any weakness or sin. So to suggest that I must forgive in the same way God forgives assumes some things. First of all, that I can forgive once for all time. That's untenable. That's untenable. I don't say to Todd Murray, you know, Brother, I forgive you for all sins for all time. Don't, don't worry about it. You never have to come again. And I, I don't say that to him. And he sins against me a lot. <laughs> Just kidding. You know, you're going to get a card or a note. Why don't you treat pastor nicer? You know? I just know how that's going to happen. 
So it's an untenable concept that if I forgive exactly like God, that I could forgive all sin, past, present, and future, all the time. I'm not in God's position, and Christ isn't uh, the, my son. He's my savior. God offered Christ as the sole ground of my forgiveness, and he, on Christ's behalf, forgives me for all sin, past, present, and future. Now, God provided the sacrifice then through which he permanently pardons me on that ground alone. So when someone sins against me, I have no sacrifice of my own in which to ground my forgiveness. Therefore, my forgiveness isn't exactly like God's forgiveness in that technical way. I don't have my own sacrifice, which I offer for your sin as a payment. Christ is the payment of all of our sin if you're in Christ. And so Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 teaches the very opposite of conditional forgiveness between two people who stand in a permanent state of forgiving grace. Jesus, his his main points are, look, because believers have received eternal pardon in the sufficient sacrifice of the king, they must lavish that same mercy upon all comparatively minuscule debts. That's right. You get mercy because I stand in mercy. And because we always stand in that permanent state of forgiving grace, I should do it immediately. I should lavishly pardon every debt owed to me, whether somebody petitions for it or not, because I stand in mercy. Now, do I forgive people because they ask? Do I forgive people because they ask? Is their very asking some sort of payment? Now, some maintain that another's repentance is sort of the condition that they must meet before they grant forgiveness. But on what grounds would they be released? Asking? How could their asking for forgiveness be a payment? Christ is the payment. Uh, If I'm going to pardon them, it has to be on the basis of Christ. It can't be on the basis of them asking. That's no payment. It can't be on the basis of some condition that they they meet. It can't be on the basis of the fact that they change their life, change their attitude, change their circumstances, change anything. Christ is the basis for which I say, "You're, you're pardoned. And if Christ is the basis and he's already paid it and he's forgiven me lavishly, then you're asking me isn't a condition the debt owed to me, man, I'd be assuming some things. I'd be assuming I have the same authority and right to demand the meeting of the condition that God does, and I don't have that right. He's already met it, in, and he has a right to. And on the basis of Christ, I have, I have no condition on you. What condition do I have on you? None. Furthermore, the debt owed to me, I would be assuming it's the same as that which was owed to God, and I would be demanding that you meet that condition. Look, your debt to me is nothing It's minuscule, it's small, puny, hardly even mentionable in light of the my debt against God. It's nothing. Now, as I said, when I release somebody then, I don't release them from their obligation to God. I don't judicially forgive anyone positionally. That's between them and God. I have no power to absolve sin or cleanse sin in the way God did with me. When I release others from personal debt or of injury to me, I'm expressing forgiveness that I enjoy every moment of every day as I stand in grace. And even before an offender asks for forgiveness, even if they never ask, I release them. Look, that is Mark 10, sorry, Mark 11, 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. Look, if you're in a worship service or you're before God praying and you know there's some debt somebody's incurred against you, you're to release that. They've not, there's no sense in which they asked. You're to release it. You say, well, what happens after that once I've released them from that debt? Look, when someone injures you or offends you or 
owes you restitution. First of all, you release them for personal liability to you. You're no judge. You pardon them on the basis of Christ. You forgive the offense. They owe you nothing personally. So you're going to treat them as if you expect no personal payment. It doesn't mean you don't interact with them. But you treat them as if you expect no personal payment that satisfies you. And you tell them, look, I want to experience the fullness of fellowship, the fullness of Christian communion. If they're a believer, they're not a believer, you want to give them the gospel. <laughs> but if they are a Christian, you want to experience the fullness of fellowship and communion and joy. And if they do not acknowledge their sin, that's going to be difficult between us, especially if it's the kind of sin that has a scarring effect and keeps you from God. You know, I'm going to be burdened for you. I'm going to keep being burdened for you that you're not admitting these things, especially if they become a pattern in your life. You're not admitting them. You can't be right with God if you're not admitting these things. You're just ignoring them. You owe me nothing personally, but I'm an instrument now in your life to help you. And to be reconciled to God is to be reconciled to me, the one you keep coming at and never admitting your sin. Look, if you're in a marriage and you've never sought forgiveness, this is part of your problem. You've never pled with somebody to forgive you, and you should. You should use that language. We've always said that in this church. Teach your kids, teach your family to use language that's humbling. Don't make those silly little, you know, generalizations. I apologize. Or worse, you make excuses when you say, I'm sorry. Sorry this was such a big deal to you, you know. (laughs) That's not sorry. Name the sin, be specific, and seek forgiveness, seek pardon. And if you're the one being asked, you're an instrument of grace in that person's life because they owe you nothing personally. You're not asking them to grovel. You're not, even, you're not even demanding anything of them. I am now free to restore our relationship to say, yes, I've already forgiven you. Let's act it out. Let's transact the thing. Let's restore together. Let me show you that I've already released you of a personal debt to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring the relationship together. I'm coming your way. That's how you show that you have forgiven. That's how you restore. And now you can be an instrument in their life. Hey, this has been a pattern in your life. This is something I'm seeing. I'm beginning to get pretty spiritually concerned that you either don't seek forgiveness or you're blind to the pattern or you're ignoring it. And if you do that, our relationship's going to get strained because your relationship with God is getting strained. Let me now be an instrument to help you with that. You've broken communion with me because you keep sinning against me. You owe me nothing, but God, you need to respond to God. And by responding to God, that means you're going to You're going to restore this here. Begin to confess your sin to me and to God. In order to experience full reconciliation, that broken relationship, there must be an acknowledgement and confession to that. So I'm not against a view that says they need to confess it. I'm just, I don't like the view that says I can withhold forgiveness until then. No, forgiveness is the very basis upon which I can now move toward you and help you. Learn to reconcile and help you learn to reconcile. If you never acknowledge your sin, I can't do anything about what God's going to do in your life because of that, but I can sure pray for you. I can sure move toward you. I have nothing in my heart. You owe me personally nothing. You say, well, I could get hurt again if I keep moving toward people like that who never change. Oh, you will get hurt again and again and again. But how is someone going to experience from you the love of Christ that was lavished on you if you never have to give it because they stopped sinning the first time? Look, 
People are sinners. They're going to offend you multiple times in places that are very painful. And yet it's in those moments when you have nothing else but Christ and nothing else but his forgiveness of you, that's what you lavish on them. How else are they going to learn except you're the instrument? You say, well, I don't want to be God's instrument in that. Then you need to look at whether you're even in Christ. Well, how can you say I take all this from Christ and I don't splash any of it on anyone else? Love it, listen. If you want to learn humility, live there, right there. Live there, release those debts and become an instrument of grace in that person's life, right? Don't withhold forgiveness. Don't think you can withhold forgiveness. And don't evaluate their repentance like you know their heart. Well, they weren't repentant when they came and asked. Well, what did you want? A box of Kleenex and weepy tears and ashes and sackcloth? And you want them to flagellate themselves and cut themselves? What do you want? That's payment to you. That means nothing in the presence of God. Christ was already punished for sinners. You're just acting out some sort of human justice. Well, it feels good to get my pound of flesh. Oh, it does but it now makes two sinners and no one as an instrument of grace. No, because you're sinning against them in return. And now you're the worst because you're justifying it. How sad. So let's, let's nurture humility by releasing our right to judge, become an instrument of grace in someone's life. This will nurture Humility in such a way that crushes pride. Amen? All right, let's pray.